Shut up and sit down. Actually, I saw them in, the, in a car DVD player. <laughs> the way as Sam you were meant to Welcome to Popcraft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert. I'm back after a bit of a hiatus, sorry for that, uh, with an episode that is going to be the season finale for the first season of Popcraft. I want to take some time to really get a backlog of episodes, to get a bunch of guests lined up, you know, to have a consistent schedule is the bottom line, and so that there aren't any, you know, major hiatuses going forward. I also want to test out some new segments. So there will be a bigger and better PopCraft coming to you very soon in the next two to three months. But in the meantime, this will be our last episode. And I got a very special episode lined up for you this week. Uh, But before we get into that, I do want to beg you for money like Little Orphan Oliver. (laughs) And I I am here with one of my very best friends. So I'm, I'm trying not to completely fall apart on the air. He's doing really good. He's not he's being very quiet right now. We'll see how much of this makes it to air. Um, but please consider donating to Patreon. I am actively bleeding money on this podcast just with the hosting fees and everything. You get a bunch of behind the scenes content, even if you just donate a single dollar, uh, just one dollar to the podcast will get you all the outtakes, all the extra content and allow you to vote on episodes and a whole bunch of other tiers and uh, buildings outside are farting. Um, can you hear that? Yeah, that's called a car car. Is that a car? It's a car going fast. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's a, a new experience for me. So, yeah, that was uh, my very good friend, Austin Fickman, who will be guest in today's podcast, where you probably saw from the title, we'll be talking about all the different Spider-Man movies, the live-action Spider-Man movies specifically, and their different adaptational approaches. Adaptations have been a big focus of the podcast recently, and so I really wanted to get one big episode to talk about, you know, all the variety of uh, sort of thought processes and ideas that go into adapting a beloved, you know, piece of IP. And so, Austin, welcome to the Popcraft, the Popcraft, the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I really appreciate. <laughs> no, this is going to be great. I can already tell this is just going to be a disaster. <laughs> thank you for thank you for having me. I do like the lead in of. We're taking some time to figure out how to make this show a lot better, but in the meantime, here's this guy. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Have you have you listened to me? No, it's it's I've fine. I've listened it's a, to it. How many episodes have you listened to? I've listened to every episode that I can listen to, and that I you like watch I say stuff. That, I said yes. So, what would you review this podcast? What would I review? Give it out of uh, thirty six. Give it out of thirty six. Yeah. What is it like? Thirty four point five out of thirty six. Uh, thirty seven. No, no. I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's up there. I mean, why are you doing it? Yeah, give it a thirty four and a half. Sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're doing and that's the job. end of the review. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Rated no. five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> there you go. Please leave a review, even on Amazon. We're not on Amazon, but please leave a review. Uh, <laughs> oh, this is going to be chaos. So, Austin, do you want to like properly introduce yourself? Just talk about like where you work, what you do, what your kind of background is in film? Uh, yeah, so my name is Austin. I have been a lifelong fan of film and TV, much like you. Also very into... Uh, theme parks and theme park attractions and wanting to always sort of find a way to I've, I've always wanted to be able to tell the stories within film first but also figure out how to continue those stories and those characters and those worlds across television and uh, continuing a film series or a theme park experience or any of that and so I'm currently uh, an assistant 
at Universal Pictures in the brand marketing department, and the department basically specializes in in pretty much that. It's promoting the films first, but then also preserving that IP and essentially being the gatekeepers of that IP and figuring out what is that spinoff series, what is that theme park experience, or also a video game, or how do you utilize different aspects of the company to continue that story and support that material and project. That is sort of like, I guess, a general overview, but we'll just do a, a hard pivot Spider-Man. This is now a Spider-Man podcast. Uh, but no, we're, we're, we are going to talk about all the different, uh, the three different live action takes on Spider-Man. All the movies, there will be spoilers for all of them. I mean, I honestly don't know exactly what's going to come up. We could even talk about Spider-Verse. So if you've not seen any Spider-Man movie, maybe go watch him all back to back. Just marathon them, I guess, and come back and listen to this podcast episode. I really want to start off focusing on there are some obvious overlaps, and we'll hit on those, but each era of Spider-Man, which is now all kind of coalesced into No Way Home, which is, you know, breaking all these records now, especially during the pandemic, but they, they all definitely have their own distinct identity, I think, and they all had very distinct approaches, often, you know, and largely helmed by uh, an individual filmmaker who really led the tonal approach and helped, you know, create the stories with their writers. So I want to talk about why certain decisions were made to approach the different Spider-Man franchises in the way that they were approached. And I just want to start with you, Austin, about what you think individualizes each of the different franchises and why they are the way they are and, and what they are to begin with. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm quickly just pausing for one second because I just wanted to verify one thing before giving that answer. Are you going to talk about the James Cameron Spider-Man movie where Peter Parker and Mary Jane fucked on a giant spider web? I'm sorry, what? Yeah, this is real. Wait. Okay, we're <laughs> here, here's our 45th tangent of the episode. So James Cameron had a pitch for Leonardo DiCaprio to play Peter Parker. This is before Sam Raimi came on board. This was in the 90s. This is real. This is real. You can look it up. The uh, treatment is online. There is a scene in the movie where Peter Parker... And Mary Jane have sex on a web. But it doesn't end there. That's not the best part. The best part is that Peter, throughout this entire movie, is having weird, like, hormonal, biological reactions to his new spider powers. And so he feels like a like a predator. Like, literally, like a, like a spider is a predator. Like, in the animal kingdom. And so he, like, the sex scene is not just a weird sex scene on a web. Like, he starts getting, like, weirdly, like, animal-y about it. And he, like, gives this whole speech about, like, how spiders are predators before he, like has sex with Mary Jane. The, and this is real. This is 100% real. I remember I actually read the treatment while we were at film school, and it burned into my memory. For the early 90s. I think Electra was in it too, even, or Shocker. There was like there were some overlaps with some of the movies that came later. And James Cameron, Jim Cameron, was going to make the Spider-Man movie. I think this was coming after Titanic. This was No, this was his follow-up to T2. There you go. What? Yeah. <laughs> I was reading this. This is insane. Yeah, no, it's absolutely insane. It's the most fucking James Cameron thing you've ever read, which means Leonardo it gets DiCaprio weird as, as Spider-Man, Maggie Smith as Mary Jane. Maggie Smith? Who's Maggie Smith? I feel like I know it. I know that name. Wait, why do I know that name? Hold on. I feel like I know like a Dame Maggie Smith. I'm like, is it the same yeah, person? Yeah, I was like, that can't be right. That's like an old lady, isn't she? That That's... Not McGon not McGonagall, is it? Is that, that's Maggie Smith, isn't it? Isn't that Maggie Smith? That's Maggie Smith. Wait, this can't be the same Maggie Smith. 
I kind of like this even more now. I'm just thinking young Leo and Dave Maggie Smith up on the fucking... Oh, I misread. It was Mae Parker. Oh, oh that, yeah, that adds up. Okay, well, there you go. That's a, that's a very different movie, definitely. It's such an interesting movie. Um... Watch Smith out! Actually, watch oh, watch the feed. Maggie Smith's Aunt May actually would have been super cool. Yeah, um, that would have been awesome. She'd be a great. Arnold Aunt Schwarzenegger is Otto Octavius. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that is the last person I would cast to play Doc Ock. This was close. Like this was close to getting made. Yeah, no, like it almost happened. It like it didn't happen because it got like delayed, and then he went on and did whatever his next movie was. He wasn't even the first one. Toby Hooper was going to direct it. Oh really? Yeah, and that's was he just writing it? Uh, was James Cameron? He was definitely attached to directing. No, he it was. Yeah, he was, but it looks like it was originally going to be Toby Hooper directing it, which is kind of interesting because I feel like that actually kind of leans into it leads right into the pivot of um, there were four writers on this. Yeah, but I mean the fact that Toby Hooper, I mean, going from that specific horror, like I mean, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and uh, poltergeist but then going into a movie like this is kind of similar to sam, well, sam Raimi's trajectory and so yeah you know, that for a transition <laughs> so. no, that's a great transition because i that that uh his sam Raimi's horror background definitely i think had an enormous influence in how he approached yeah, his I mean, spider-man trilogy so yeah go ahead jump oh, into it no so i feel like with i mean with that you definitely sort of see that with his movies and i don't know how, how i mean looking back at it, i mean part of it too is certain things the way that it ages versus when seeing it for the first time in theaters or home. But there's definitely those elements that you can tell, like this person comes from a horror background, but also this person comes from a 1980s horror background. Totally. Where there's that sort of level of kind of like cartoony visuals at certain points, but it's also like done in like a campy but fun way where it actually works. And I think it lends itself really well to a comic book adaptation yeah, it's it's the camp exactly. Is exactly it's you 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 watch Evil Dead and Spider Man and like those are very different movies, but you can distinctly see Sam Raimi's signature there, where it's you know it's the very over the top you know melodrama emotions, occasionally you know kind of stilted dialogue, but also like that that the the big sort of fun but emotional push. This like genuine there's there's a lot of heart to it, you know, and it's like clearly it's all in done out of love. Yeah. and it doesn't take itself too seriously it's that weird combination of camp where it's like everything is played very seriously but in a way where you can tell they like they know they're just like having fun mm-hmm. like i don't know it's it's a it's a weird dichotomy of like fun and like uber earnestness yeah no i agree and i, I think that that feels just to, to answer the overall initial question uh but it's that to me felt the most feels the most like inherently cartoony comic book-y in mm-hmm. the way that that is just how Sam Raimi operates in terms of how he makes something. And then going into the Mark Webb films, I mean, Mark Webb comes from a background of these... He comes from mostly an indie film background and movies like 500 Days of Summer and Gifted, which, by the way, Gift I don't know if you've seen Gifted, but Gifted's a fantastic movie. And, it, and that shows where it is this big-budget spectacle... But also there are those scenes where it feels like an indie movie. Like yeah. There's the moments like that. What comes to mind is that scene when you just see Peter in, in the first Amazing Spider-Man, where you see Peter just, just skating around. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Like that scene yeah. looks like 
like plucked straight out of an indie film. Right. No, totally. It's like if you shot an indie film about you know a kid who gets bit by a spider and gets spider powers, like that that scene is totally in it. It's like the chronicle, yeah. you know, scene of of Spider Man. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think likewise, I think a common theme we're going to have throughout this episode is that the director's backgrounds like directly parallel sort of the the way that they approach the tone and and the general uh feeling of the their trilogies of spider-man or mm-hmm. in mark webb's right. case almost trilogy gone too soon um but he also you know really was a director who and filmmaker who really focused on romance and a lot of his movies before it and that really comes to the forefront in a way it doesn't even in like you you see the raimi spider-man movies and like Peter's relationship with Mary Jane is obviously important, but it doesn't feel like that's, like, the driving factor of the movies, right? As opposed to, like, the two Amazing Spider-Man movies, where I feel like the emotional through line, and we'll get into this more later, I think, I have, I is have... the romance with Peter and Gwen. Can I, can I... Can I... I don't know if this is a tangent for later if we're going here, but I had a question going off of that for you based on... Raimi's betrayal of the Peter MJ relationship, and I don't know if this is the time for just that. fuck it. Why okay, not? great. Because <laughs> I brought this up to you when I was because I was a little bit ahead of you on the rewatch leading into No Way Home and the scene in Spider Man Three when Peter just decides to just kiss Gwen Stacy, knowing MJ's right there. What? Why? What is what? <laughs> what is the purpose of that scene? <laughs> That I mean, moment. it's clearly to like show how far he's falling with the symbiote, right? Like that. Oh no, it that's right. Symbiote. Yeah, it's symbiote. It's symbiote. Oh, you're talking about in the parade. You're not. Yeah. I'm thinking of the like the like diner the scene. No. Oh no, you're right. When he's getting the key to the city. Yeah. What the? Fu- it's such a dickhead move. I remember watching that. Yeah, and being like, I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. It just seems so out of left field. Yeah. And you see how the relationship grows across these movies, and it's just, especially from Spider-Man Two to Spider-Man Three, and how it ends with that understanding of this is what his life is but she's there for him and he's there for her and they're gonna make it work despite the obstacles and then just what 20 minutes into spider-man 3 he's like yeah, he kisses the peep, everyone loves me or whatever the line is and then he just swings down and he he's I, letting the fame get to his head but that just feels like something that was so jarring in that which moment. i think is the maybe the point is that it's like supposed to show the fame getting to his head it's so interesting to me the way that like Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, I feel like in kind of popular conversation, um, at least on the internet, is sort of treated as like the nice Spider-Man. Like, I especially remember when like Andrew Garfield's movies were coming out, everyone was like, Andrew Garfield's such a dick. Like, his Spider-Man is too cool and he's such a prick. Tobey's Spider-Man, before he even gets the symbiote, like, effectively publicly cheats on his girlfriend. Like, you could argue it's kind of like uh, acting where he's like, he's playing a role, but like, it's not like he warned her. Like, it wasn't like that was like, there were, he didn't have to do that. Yeah. Like, you know, like, it wasn't like he was scripted and it was like, oh, I have to kiss Gwen Stacy in front of all of New York City. Yeah, he chose to do that. It's such a dick move. Yeah, it was like And he after. has, like, some of those distinct things where it's like, I don't know, to, even Toby's Peter Parker had some edge to him. Like, it was kind of a, yeah, it's a weird, weird choice. Yeah. I'm sure we'll get more into that a little bit later, but... And the other thing, too, just on the, what you were saying about the different directors lending themselves to how the adaptation progresses, I think... The one is, is, for me, is John Watts. And John Watts, for me, like, I know I know his earlier work. But for me, I've not seen his earlier work. Mm-hmm. So I've not seen Cop Car, which I've heard is a really great film. Yeah. and But I can't, I don't know, I just knowing what I know about those movies, like, 
that Spider-Man trilogy, mainly Spider-Man Homecoming to me, feels like, and and we've talked about this since the movie initially came out and we saw it, but it feels like if John Hughes made a Spider-Man movie. Totally. And I think that was literally the pitch. I think John Watts has talked about that. And I don't even know if Kevin Feige came to him and was like, we want to do John Hughes Spider-Man, or if if he was just like, we want to do high school Spider-Man and... John Watts was like, okay, so let's do it like an 80s, you know, John Hughes movie. And, you know, you, you see the direct, like, obvious homages to it, like the Ferris Bueller's Day Off, right. like, direct parallel. And uh, it definitely comes out in how it's so comedically focused. Like, it's those movies are much more of comedies than, uh, you know, the other Spider-Man movies. And they, they all, all the franchises have comedic elements. But I, I really do think that, like, even No Way Home, which gets really dark, is still, like, a comedy. Yeah. And... A big part of that is the the decision to approach it like a John Hughes movie, these high school comedies, like focusing on these kids just like being awkward and acting like dumbasses and like finding out who they are and coming of age and, you know, really leaning into the the uh, the tension of that because um, comedy is so often born of tension. Homecoming, like obviously best epitomizes that. But I think you could even talk about like bringing it into the romance side again of the relationship between Peter and MJ, it's so often played awkwardly, like their first kiss in No Way Home. So awkward. And it's so charming. And I love it. And Tom Holland and Zendaya obviously have amazing chemistry, focusing on how they're like, they're terrible communicating and they clearly really like each other, but like the other one wants the other one to say it. And then you also then have the fun of like Zendaya like thinks Peter's Spider-Man, but she like doesn't want to say that because she doesn't want to seem stupid and like you know, she has her own issues and just the, the tension that comes out of the comedy between them that you don't really see in the other two trilogies, which I think, again, points to sort of, you know, a major difference in how the MCU approached Spider-Man versus how Raimi and uh, Webb approached Spider-Man, which is just the focus on comedy and that sort of lighthearted tone, which I know a lot of people took issue with, but I think is like a great approach to Spider-Man, especially a high school Spider-Man it was so refreshing and so fun. To really, you know, lean into that lighthearted, you know, nature, just like have a fun popcorn uh, movie and then let the emotional moments really hit that much harder when it's like, oh, this isn't funny anymore. You know, like when you watch No Way Home where it's like it starts so funny and so fun. And when you get that tonal shift, like two thirds of the way through the movie, it hits like a fucking gut punch. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, we've said spoilers, like when May dies, like you're like, holy Wait, what? Sh-. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not, um, Uncle Ben dies. I mean, sorry, Aunt May dies in Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah, it's, it's, I think makes it that much more impactful that you have this, you know, interplay between comedy and tragedy where it's like, you know, the only moment I felt like in uh, all the other previous Spider-Man movies that hit me as hard as that scene did, and this is obviously all just subjective, but in my opinion, the only other scene that competes with Aunt May's death in the most recent Spider-Man movie is Gwen Stacy's death in Amazing Spider-Man 2. Which is oddly another movie that, at least for a lot of its run, really leans into comedy, weirdly, with Electro. Like, he's... That, we'll get to that. Yeah. But, it's yeah, it's that, like, hard right tonal shift that you, like... Because it feels so off-base for what the movie is, it hits so much harder. And I, I really appreciate that about the MCU's approach that... I mean, that's very John Hughes. It's all, like, really fun and funny. And then, you know, one of the kids talks about, like, how they want to commit suicide. And it's like suddenly you're like, oh, shit, you know, and it like comes out of nowhere, like in the middle of just like tension, like kind of building and then boom, suicide. Okay, well, question for you with with on the John Hughes, on the John Hughes, John Watts front, because my understanding is 
he doesn't really have a background of making a movie like that. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't, I'm not as familiar with his work part of the MCU, but I know that that's something that obviously Marvel Studios now is known for, of bringing in right. directors where, or writers where that's not in their wheelhouse typically, and then giving them that sandbox to add their own vision and voice to it. And I don't know if that's something that was the case of John Watts or if there's precedent. Cop Car is not like a John Hughes movie, but I think, especially if you just watch the trailer, you don't really get a feeling for like the, the extent of the tone because I think the, the big parallels it has with his ultimate MCU approach to Spider-Man is really letting the kids be kids. Because, mm-hmm. you know, that movie follows these like children who like steal a cop car. Sure. There's a lot of humor that comes out of that. And re- it feels really authentic. I, I think in a way that... John Hughes' teenage movies, you know, I think feel to a lot of people, which is why people still watch them, you know, 40 years later. You know, I don't necessarily know that, like, the high school sections in Sam Raimi's movies necessarily felt like. Like, I think there's a lot of, you know, which is not to, like, shit on those movies. There, There's, especially the second one is, you know, like, a masterpiece. There's a lot of great stuff, but I don't think that, like, what's really appealing about the Raimi and even the Webb approach is how authentic it feels in terms of how it portrays high school because that's not really the focus it's much more you know like the web movie is much more about the romance and kind of like the weird like sci-fi spy conspiracy shit building in the background and then with Raimi it really is kind of about that like that very specific tone the camp you know leaning into like the very the earnestness of Peter Parker as a person and also the series as a whole and I think focusing on him as being this really like kind of ordinary, down on his luck person, which I think is where the Raimi movies really shine, as opposed to the MCU, where I think you maybe you know it's a common criticism that you don't see Peter until the very end of No Way Home as really sort of the down on his luck like kid that you kind of are used to, but you get to see him as a teenager in a way you haven't really I feel like seen him in prior um, series. And so I think that's really where uh, it shows uh, John Watts's background is that he knows how to work with young actors and he knows how to bring out that sort of authentic and a very John Hughes and in a very, you know, even sort of Stephen King way of like bringing these kids and letting them just like act like kids and act like dumbasses and like in a way that where they don't feel like they're like parodies of teenagers, even when they're being like so stupid. Uh, but, you know, that feels kind of authentic to the teenage experience but i mean that's just my opinion about all of that we're, we're kind of you know touching on uh sort of the, the different approaches and, and why they made some of those well i actually i mean that's what i want to get into next is why the certain approaches and those decisions were made and not just you know because the filmmaker maybe has a background in that but you know why why was that filmmaker hired like what was sony looking for at the time that leads to that um and i i think you know we talked about with Raimi that it was very much about sort of emulating this feeling like a like almost like a silver age comic book and feeling very earnest leaning to the camp the fun the high emotion the high stakes the drama and then suddenly you know that trilogy ended and we moved into you know webs what would have been a trilogy duology of spider-man movies and i think you can see very clearly the influence of the era on i mean all of these movies but especially mark webb's because it takes such a a hard shift with you know the story of peter parker in terms of how much grittier it is like we talked about in terms of even just the way 
scenes are shot and the types of scenes you see of like Peter just like fucking around. Like there's nothing going on. It's just him for like a full minute, it, maybe even longer, skating around to like indie music playing and focusing on the romance. But like the, the focus on the grittiness and sort of the untold story of Peter Parker, like is very of that age with like Christopher Nolan's Batman movies were coming out. And those were kind of the iconic, you know, superhero movies. Like, I think the first Amazing Spider-Man movie came out in 2011. 2012. 2012. It's 2012, and it was, I want to say it was within weeks of Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, there you go. before Dark Knight Rises. And so the MCU was still, like, basically, like, establishing their their kingship. But, like, Nolan's Batman movies were, like, the high watermark, you know, of, like, what a superhero movie was, like, could be. That In terms of, like, the public and critics conceptions of it and so i think you can definitely tell that when sony was hiring mark webb whether he knew this or not or whether this is just he happened to bring exactly what they were looking for they wanted something very gritty and very tragic you know really leaning into the tragedy where like i think raimi's movies had tragic elements like a lot of spider-man stories do and the mcu ultimately ends up being very tragic but by and large i wouldn't define those movies as tragedies right as opposed to the mark webb movies were like think about how many people like die you know you have obviously uncle ben but then they go straight into killing george stacy at the end and then on top of that like peter fucking like ignores him and it's basically you know a whole like series of movies about like people's fuck-ups getting them killed um and you know you have the obvious uncle ben like peter has to learn with great power must come great responsibility which it takes him longer to learn that than you might expect if you think about like how long he's like an angry vigilante after his uncle dies, which is another sort of like gritty like, oh, this is Spider-Man, but real, you know, like let's really make a suit that it looks like Peter would have made himself, even though it, it totally doesn't. But you also then get the tragedy of like the, the very Nolan-esque tragedy of, you know, George Stacy's death and Gwen Stacy's death and like leaning into these darker elements and really trying to highlight um, that sort of dark melodrama in a way that I don't think the other trilogies do. Uh, and then transitioning to John uh, Watts. God, I keep wanting to say John Hughes. Uh, John Watts, Spider-Man trilogy. And, and Spider-Man in general in the MCU is they wanted something that felt very different. And they felt like what we hadn't really seen, and I think it is true, is a real high school Peter Parker movie. Like really focusing on Peter as a kid. You know, like he, I feel like it's best epitomized by actually his introduction in uh, Civil War, where, you know, he, Tony Stark, like, comes into his, like, tiny room in his tiny apartment, and he's like, so what are you, like, spider, spider kid, spider lad? And he goes, spider, spider man, you know, his, like, voice cracks, and, and Tom Holland plays it so well. And I think that's, like, exactly what those movies are about, is about this, you know, it's, they're coming of age, about over that trilogy scene, Spider Boy grew up into Spider Man. You know, focusing then, as we said, the comedic elements of that. But, you know, I'm curious about, you know, sort of any insights you have into all of that, too. No, I, I think you're... I think that's right. I, I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, was like, I was just... <laughs> all of that, I was just captioned. I was like, I wasn't expecting you to talk to me. Um, I, I'm going to go back to earlier at that point. Um, I didn't want to talk to oh, you. yeah, I want to go back to earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to earlier where you were talking about that drastic total shift from... Spider-Man 3 to Amazing Spider-Man. And I think you see 
I mean, there was supposed to be a Spider-Man 4, and they had a script for a Spider-Man 4. They had full casting. They were getting ready to shoot it. It was supposed to come out in May of 2011, and then they pulled the plug on it, went a different direction, and it's this direction. And like you're saying, it is that grittier tone, and it very much is, like you're saying, it's in line with that that Dark Knight trilogy, with Iron Man, and everything that's sort of being done, where you used to see it's it's more in line with that new vision for a comic book movie in this new decade. The fact that there, I mean, we didn't sort of see that trilogy play out until getting, until Peter, until Andrew Garfield's Peter got closure in No Way Home, it does leave you on that cliffhanger of he's had everything taken from him. And he... Almost everything. At least he still had Aunt May. That's true. Tom Holland's Peter is like the one who like truly... That's true. Which is such the weird ending to it all. I still respect the balls it took Marvel to go like, (laughs) they had the happiest, like, I've got my shit going on, Peter Parker, and they were like, we're going to rob you of literally everything and everyone in your life. And just to like really dig the knife in, no one fucking knows who you are. So you have to completely start over. It's brutal. Like, it's really sad. Yeah. I've never left a Spider-Man movie as sad as I did leaving No Way Home, which I did not expect. No, I mean, neither did I. I mean, it's it does progressively get dark. And I, I mean, that's a whole other thing that I, I'm i sure we'll talk more about later on, about how really that trilogy in itself is one first movie and one sort of that origin story collectively. Yeah, so I think it's you go into that 2010s superhero era, and I think Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2 are very reflective of that and then when they made that change to go the direction of partnering with marvel studios that john watts trilogy and then integrating peter into the mcu movies but just from the sony standpoint that's going into that new era and that era has become that just mcu era yeah where it's like you had i feel like in the 20 i mean when spider-man started i mean you had x-men and that was they were pioneers. I mean, what what Sam Raimi was doing was kicking off superhero movies in the same way that that uh, X Men was being kicked off, and that sort of that that started that era of superhero movies. And totally. then, obviously, the refresh of going in the direction with Amazing Spider Man is going in line with what Nolan was doing, like you were saying, and what Marvel was doing. And I think that their goal and mark webb's goal it does feel like you are trying to balance the two where i think you have elements that are very kind of in line with that gritty nolan like what you would expect from that dark knight trilogy to get those fans in and then you also do have those moments of levity that you get from at that point everything leading up to avengers avengers one and you have that like the humor is there and it's it's it does walk that fine line and I think well it's it's gritty but then it's still comic booky. Right. And it has that balance. Then when it goes to that era where it's now where it's it is a very Marvel Studios heavy superhero era where it's now it's that they they've they've captured lightning in the bottle and it's you have to emulate that. So I mean like you have movies like just just to sort of pick and choose. I mean, you have some that really do go very off off path, off, off the beaten path. But it's like you have some that are very gritty. You have some that are like Shazam, for example. Shazam does feel, in a lot of ways, to me, like it captures that sort of MCU spirit totally. more than it does of that DC spirit. 
based I think off it's, of the films that came before it. I think it's easily the most MCU-like of ev- any DC movie that maybe has ever been made. Yeah. And I think the thing that is about this Star Wars trilogy, because even then, like, yes, it feels MCU, but also, and mainly with Spider-Man Homecoming, because you have Amazing Spider-Man that was trying to walk that line, and then this almost feels like it was... Like you were saying before, is you have the younger Peter, you have Peter in high school, and it does feel like it, it's kids being kids, and it's capturing, like, yes, it's an MCU movie. Sorry, I just hit that again. <laughs> it's, it's an MCU movie, but it is a coming-of-age movie, and it's, I mean, they all are, but I mean, like, it's like, right. it's it has that more youthful, fun spirit where it still is feeling like an MCU movie because Marvel Studios is there, but it also is still feeling fresh and, like, its own thing, and, like, it's not necessarily... 100% a superhero movie at times it's it is a high school comedy it's a coming of age movie and he happens to be a superhero and, and I think balancing that what, one of the things I want to talk about on a very in, individualistic like concrete way about sort of how they help sort of input that um, the youthful vigor into the MCU series is if you go into it, and this is especially true in Homecoming especially true in the first part of Homecoming that movie's paced more quickly than the other Spider-Man movies. Like, especially, like, you look at, like, the first Amazing Spider-Man, like, really takes its time of just, like, having Peter, like, fucking around with powers. And, like, you know, like, we talk about the skateboarding scene, where, like, it definitely kind of feels like it's, like, it has that, like, kind of more indie, like, we'll just, like, sit with the characters. And, like, you know, it still has to compete with, like, people expect a certain level of, like, blockbuster speed. So, like, you're not going to look at those movies and be like, oh, wow, like, The Amazing Spider-Man is a slowly paced movie. It's not. But it's not like the MCU Spider-Man movies where they really do have, they're really fast paced. And if you literally look on the page, the scenes are often shorter. Like, they're often, you know, like, one, two minutes long, like, almost like an 80s, like, Spielberg movie. Where, and it's like, you have a lot of these really quick scenes, too. Like, think about, like, almost the, like, high school, like, pseudo-montages of, like, Peter... Where, like, often it's, like, quick scene that's, like, there's a punchline. And then you move on to the next scene, you know, of, like, Peter and all these different classes and stuff like that. And as opposed to, like, you know, you look at the montages in the other trilogies and, like, they tend to have more, um, more of almost like a classical movie montage of, like, a, you know, they, 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 they tend to be following the character like growing in some way you know or like the sort of the rocky montage effect right versus the mcu spider-man where it's like kind of about the jokes and like keeping the momentum going and you know often i think you cut to action scenes and like the spectacle more quickly in the mcu movies than you would necessarily at least specifically in homecoming well that was something i noticed i i'm not so sure how it plays out in far from home although it's definitely true in no way home which slows down for a little bit in the middle of the movie, but for the most part is, like, very fast-paced once things, like, shit hits the fan. How many... Do you know how many pages that Homecoming script is? I, off the top of my head, I have no idea. Okay, I was curious, like, what that comparison is in terms of... If it was just those scenes or if it was just kind of that whole script felt like that. I mean, it's one of those things where once you get to, like, the climax of the movies... All of them are roughly the same. You know, you have the classic Hollywood climax of, like, things are moving faster, but also sometimes scenes are longer, as opposed to, like, it's really in the early on the setup is what I'm talking about. 
it's very fast paced and you're like you're you're quickly trying to get to the next joke and the next like action scene and it doesn't mean that you're missing character work because i actually think the mcu what it does really well is it imbues the jokes it imbues the action scenes with character yeah. in a way that a lot of other superhero movies really don't do and then i i i, I mean i won't get in to you know expanding outside spider-man but i i think that's something the mcu is really good about using these really quick scenes to build up the character like think about how many like fight scenes there are in homecoming you know like it, it really is like every 10 minutes there's a new like fight scene you know whether it's like the the bank robbery that it leads you know with all the avengers mass people to like then him tracking down uh the vulture with the party um and just like keeps going and going and going and it has this propulsive pacing that you don't necessarily see in the other movies and you know that can be a good or bad thing depending on your uh taste but i certainly think it fits the tonal approach they're taking of like really leaning into this high school young very just like fast-paced like feeling like your life is going a mile a minute um as peter's kind of is and you know the one time it really does feel like it slows down i i i off the top of my head don't remember how long it is i want to say it's like three or four pages so i think it does is that great car scene at the end of Homecoming, New year going there, yeah. which is the best scene in the movie yeah, yeah. and is one of the best scene in any superhero movie ever where it's just like that's like a hitchcock scene it's it's crazy like how how stressed out you get and we we can get into more of this in, in a bit because i want to i want to talk about the mcu's approach to stakes especially um because i think it's really interesting to look at because i think they react to a lot of what the audience was saying i think probably all the trilogies did to some extent like webs one of the things i wanted to say i'm going to transition back to mark webs was you pointed out you know how they were he was trying to balance the nolan sort of grittiness darkness like this could happen in the real world which you even see in like the mcu at the start with like iron man iron man feels totally very different than most of the marvel movies like it has the the humor but it feels very grounded relatively speaking compared to especially if you look at where we are now and so you had that that mark webb was like trying to make a spider-man movie that was like grittier and darker and had an indie edge and then he was also you know trying to be like the MCU is developing, you know, we're starting to see space gods and, you know, shit like that. Like, how do you contend with that? And I think that's where Amazing Spider-Man 2 ultimately went wrong was they couldn't really decide what their approach was. I actually, I don't think this was Mark Webb's fault. Like, I think this was clearly a studio mandated, like they wanted it to be a thousand different things and to set up a thousand different movies. And so you have an Electro who feels like he was taken out of like a Sam Raimi movie, frankly, you know, with how like goofy he is, especially at the start. And then you have like all the spy stuff, which doesn't really like fit in with the story generally and doesn't have like a real emotional through line for Peter. And then you have, you know, his very like sort of classic YA romance, like really leaning into the melodrama of that with his relationship with Gwen and kind of trying to play the like grittier Spider-Man, like all our powers feel like they could exist in the real world. You know, they have animal DNA and whatnot. And it's just all these like competing tones and factors that like, so on any given scene, it doesn't gel as nicely. Like I, I think especially the sort of the romantic angle uh, with the very campy approach to some of the villains in Amazing Spider-Man 2 is where a lot of it really goes wrong. And I think you look at Harry Osborn too, who starts out, feels like he very much fits in that first movie of being really dark and like sad you know he's like he's a sad boy like he's like oh my my dad he's dead he's dying like oh fuck and i'm like i'm so angsty i have an emo haircut and like uh like i'm very straight out of chronicle like it's literally dane dehan and you have him developing that way at the same time you have electro 
you know, Jamie Foxx doing his weird, like, you know, he has that, like, very fake-looking, like, space between his two front teeth, and he's, like, has the fakest, like, bald cap on, and he's, like, running in the middle of the street, and he's, like, oh, it's Spider-Man, like, what, are you saving me? I love you, Spider-Man, and, like, it's, it's, like, it doesn't, it's a good like, impression. gel, yeah, thank you, um, and it's just, like, a weird, I think that, that conflict that you were talking about exactly is what ultimately tore that trilogy apart, is wanting to be the MCU and to be the Nolan trilogy, and I think Mark Webb went in wanting to do more of a Nolan thing, and maybe, you know, with more kind of a, a romantic swing, which is very much, you know, in his wheelhouse. And I think Sony, by the second Amazing Spider-Man movie, wanted more of an MCU to build a universe to be funnier, to be more fun and bombastic. And that ultimately is where the franchise fell apart. Can I let me ask you this? Because you have, you're coming from this because obviously I'm a massive fan of these movies and of comic book movies, but I also... I'm someone who is not familiar with the comics and with the source material beyond all the questions that I ask you about the source material or anyone else. I mean, my dad's a very big comic book fan. So for years, as I was getting into Marvel movies, he would give me background about this is like this, this is like this. But with those movies, as someone like yourself, who's been such a massive fan of these comics for so long, which to you feels like the most faithful adaptation of the source material? Oh, man. Um, that's a really good question. So, yeah, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this on the podcast, but I am a huge comic book nerd. Like, I worked at a comic book shop in high school. Uh, Spider-Man's actually, like, Peter Parker's Spider-Man is my favorite superhero of all time. I, I think the complicated thing with the comics is there have been so many different iterations that there's not necessarily one that's, like, 100% that spider-man you know like people definitely in their heads have an idea but i think also people don't realize how much of that is influenced by like the animated cartoons they grew up with or the video games they played or things like that but if i were to say like what to me feels the most like sort of mainline comic spidey i don't think any of them do i don't think any of the movie franchises do i think they all do things a certain way i think it varies one of the things that i've always felt like has been missing from a lot of the movies with the exception of the web ones this is interesting because this was a big criticism when they came out. A lot of people were like, you know, oh, his Peter is such a fucking dick. Like, he's such a dickhead. And it's like, if you read a lot of the early comics, whether they're, you know, the Ultimate Universe of Ultimate Spider-Man, which a lot of the movies have taken influence from because it was sort of a modern, like, reimagining. Sort of, like, did what Sam Raimi did before Sam Raimi did it, except even grittier. And, you know, that's where we get the idea that, like, he got bit by a spider from Oscorp. Like, that came from this Ultimate Comics, which is the stuff I grew up with. Um, but at the same time, you also have this stuff that, you know, that was invented by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, at, you know, that goes back to the 60s. Um, and that's certainly evolved over decades. But in all of those iterations, the consistent through line, at least in early Peter Parker from, like, up till he's in his, like, finishing college, is he's kind of a dick. Like, he, he has a lot of resentment to the world because he kind of feels like he's been shit on. He's very lonely and sad and, and angsty. He's, like, a very much like a Hamlet figure. I think he's a nicer person than Hamlet. But, like, he, he, he's got that angst and got that inner pain that sometimes he lashes out. And, and he's still obviously trying to do good. But, like, his entire origin is based on him, like, deciding to be a selfish prick with his powers. And that's a lot of what made him compelling when he came out as a hero was, like, he wasn't like Superman. You know, he wasn't like Batman. He wasn't, you know, like a, a lot of heroes. And that, like, he was, like, he was trying to do good. He wasn't, he clearly wasn't a villain. But, like, 
he also is kind of a dickhead. And I think Mark Webb's movies have gotten the closest to showing that. At the same time, Peter aesthetically has never been like a skater boy too. Like that's never like, even when he's like sort of been modernized, he's not ever been like, like that's been sort of his approach. He's always, you know, been much more like geekier sort of, he's a science geek, right? Um, Which like the Mark Webb movies did. And I, I don't know that he's like too cool in those movies, but there certainly is a vibe that doesn't quite feel like Peter Parker to me. And those movies tonally really don't feel like Spider-Man to me. The Sam Raimi movies, likewise, get the down on his luck part of Peter done really well. And that's what a lot of people love about those movies is how like many of Peter's problems come from his personal life and his economics. Like he's like a poor kid who's just struggling to get by. And there's that amazing scene in the second Amazing Spider-Man movie, which I think epitomizes it and tugs on my heartstrings every time I see it. And I, I literally has, has made me cry before of where like, it's his, it's Peter's birthday. And you know, they, there's this whole birthday party and Mary Jane and Harry leave. And he finally like talks to Aunt May, who's like fallen asleep. She has like all her late bills and Peter sees that. And she's just, she's overworked. She's a sweet old lady. She's losing the house uh, that, you know, Ben and her uh, raised Peter in. And she gives Peter this $20 bill and it's just $20. And Peter's like, oh no, you like, you need this more than I do. And she's like, no, you be like, she like gets mad at him. She's like, you better take it. And like, she starts, you know, breaks down and crying. And it's so, it's just so moving. Cause it's, it's this tiny, like very like real world sad, you know, like Peter's a poor kid and his family's poor and he's like struggling to make it work, working class superhero thing that the Raimi movies do really well. That is very true to Spider-Man and, and for much of his comic runs and all of the different iterations but the camp is not really true to Spider-Man. Like you certainly, when you go back to like 60s comics were kind of cheesier and like the dialogue certainly was a lot worse, but there was always this like kind of grittiness and edge to Spider-Man that those movies don't have a lot of the time. And that, you know, especially when you look at like Mary Jane, like the Mary Jane in those movies is not like Mary Jane in the comics at all. Uh, Harry Osborn has done pretty well. Norman is, doesn't really feel like Norman Osborn. Green Goblin feels like Green Goblin, but I'd say Norman doesn't feel as much like Norman. Doc Ock doesn't feel anything like Doc Ock, which is crazy because everyone, including me, you know, loves Doc Ock in those movies. But he's nothing like the comics Doc Ock, who's like a raging narcissist. Like, you see his ego in the movie, but like, he's a prick who's not a romantic. He certainly doesn't read poetry. Like, he's like, he's he's a raging narcissist, like egomaniac who's supposed to epitomize the like, what Peter could become. Like, he's like, you could be this mad scientist if you like let sort of your your ego and your dark side and your obsession with science get in the way of like your empathy and your compassion and your, your innate sense of heroism. And then you have the MCU, which really I think makes Peter feel more like a, a kid, you know, like he is early on in the comics and throughout the entire ultimate Spider-Man run than the other ones do. And it really gets his you know sense of humor. And I think his quipping is uh, done really well when they actually do it. I think none of the movies have gotten Spider-Man's consistent quipping. Well, I don't know if that's because they've just, everyone has decided it doesn't work well in movies which I think is bullshit because I think they've proven it, it even can. Anyway, that's a whole nother topic. But it, it, it gets sort of, I think, a lot of the, the tonal approach and the, the idea of like Peter as being this like incredibly smart kid. You know, like I feel like a lot of the time the Raimi Peter sort of just like felt like average smart where like Peter in the comics is very often portrayed as like basically like a Tony Stark level genius, but who's like inhibited by you know, his financial conditions and then also the fact that, like, he can kind of let his ego get in the way sometimes and, you know, um, can be difficult to work with at times. I think they all bring something different. 
of what feels very true to Spider-Man to me. I don't know that there's one that I could point to, you know, as, as being like the Spider-Man. That's one of the things that's always really frustrated me about being a fan and going online is I see people arguing about it. And I'm like, oh, you know, like the people who like would watch the MCU movies and be like, oh, he's like, he's Iron Boy. And I'm like, like this, this kid, like clearly feels like Peter Parker to me. Like he's trying, the movies are always about like learning, you know, having great responsibility with your great powers. You know, they, they try to like challenge him about like, you know, he said he has to sacrifice things um, as Peter to like be a hero as Spider-Man. And like, it always frustrated me sort of the, the dialogues. And now, you know, like people hate on Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, and now everyone loves him after he came back in No Way Home. It just goes to show all of the discourse is kind of bullshit. Um, but I guess that's my answer is I don't feel like there's one that distinctly feels the most Spider-Man to me. I would say the web movies probably feel the least like it, but even they have things that the other two don't bring. And I, I mean, this is, this is a common enough, I think, discourse online that I do agree with, which is the best adaptation of Spider-Man in terms of feeling the most like what I feel like Spider-Man is, is actually the, the recent Sony video game uh, Spider-Man that's getting a sequel that that to me felt the most like sort of what I knew Peter as, um, with the exception that it also kind of whitewashed Peter and made him. A lot of people seem to just like really like to make Peter Steve Rogers when I think like he's not Tony Stark where he's not like a raging narcissist, you know, like dickhead alcoholic who's like constantly struggling, you know, just to like be a decent person. But he does have an edge to him that I think a lot of Spider-Man takes lack. Um, So I guess that's my very long winded answer on how as a Spider-Man fan, I feel about how true to the comics they are. We're going to pivot and talk about Night at the Museum now for the rest of this. Yeah, so the rest of the episode is, in fact, about Night at the Museum 2. We're talking I'm, about Night at the Museum 2. By the way, don't start. I will spend three hours talking about Night at the Museum 2. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I want to talk about secret identities because I think that is a major part of Spider-Man. And I think all the different trilogies approach in different ways. And it's a big source of tension uh, a lot of the time. You know, we talked about different that the different uh, franchises really tried to pivot and have very different approaches to stand out. And I think the MCU's, in terms of secret identities, really stands out because they basically said, fuck secret identities from, like, pretty early on. Like, they, like, had, like, people constantly finding out that Peter's Spider-Man. It's like, and it's not like they didn't lean into the tension at all. Like, they did, but it wasn't, like, as, like, cataclysmic when someone found out a secret identity. You know, you think about how Homecoming ends with May finding out, and then you cut to No Way Home, and it's like, she's fine. Like, he's, he's Spider-Man, and she's okay with that. And, you know, Ned finds out everything's chill. MJ finds out, like, there's a little bit of, like, uh, like, you see it kind of in No Way Home. Like, didn't you want to, like, tell people? Like, isn't, wouldn't that be better? And he's like, ah. Uh, and, I mean, you have the whole then plot of, like, his identity coming out, which ironically, I think No Way Home is so funny in that it, like, kind of takes all of these things that, like, seem like the MCU was sort of sidestepping, whether it be, like, Peter's life being, like, aggressively, like, tragically hard Peter being stuck on his lonesome and being, like, very lonely kid or, like, you know, Peter really having to, like, work to hide his secret identity. And by the end of, like, No Way Home, it's, like, he has all of them, like, hardcore, like, harder right. core than any other Spider-Man. But anyway, no, I uh, I, I just want to talk a bit about, you know, like, secret identities and the, and the stakes in the different trilogies and how they establish stakes. And um, I'm just going to put you on the spot and say, uh, is there anything you want to, you know, jump in with about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think 
and I was going to ask you a question about it, but first I'll get some of my thoughts. I, I think it's so interesting the way that these movies, what they have in common is the fact that the, the love interest finds out one way or another. Mm-hmm. And that becomes something that Peter's trying to avoid. He's trying to separate that lives and the, separate, separate those two lives. But also it's, he has to come to terms with that and he has to essentially do what he can to keep that balance and make it work even if he doesn't want to put them in that position and you see at the end of no way home where peter decides that mj and ned are better off not being in that position yeah of being tied to him being at risk because of it as much as it pains him in the moment and as much as it pains him through the end of that movie but the thing is i mean with the other ones it's done differently so my question for you was because I feel like this has been something that we've... I feel like we've debated at one point, but... Do you think May has any idea or suspicion in the first two iterations? Second one, in webs, definitely. Uh, I think Rosemary Harris's Aunt May, that's up for discussion. I think there definitely are hints that she may know. That scene in Spider-Man 2 in the backyard. Yeah, like, it, there, there, are, there are hints, but I, I, I think it's much more debatable. Because she never... It's just, it's not made as clear. Uh, there Again, it's kind of left to hints and interpretations. And she does kind of tend to seem to soften on Spider-Man, which makes you wonder if she realizes that Peter is Spider-Man. But I think g- going off of that, one of the reason I wanted to talk about this is because one of the enduring tensions in a lot of superhero stories, but the MCU has kind of walked away from, and even the DCU has walked away from to some extent, is the secret identity. And that's kind of one of the iconic tropes. And these movies are known for having like really high stakes battles, you know, battles for the end of the world, battles for New York. But what I think makes them and makes Spider-Man often so compelling is the more personal stakes you see. And not just in terms of like any individual like, oh, I want to get the girl. I want, you know, my best friend to like me, blah, blah, blah. But the secret, the very, it's very Shakespearean, you know, that the main character has a big secret. And then if anyone finds out the secret, suddenly they have to deal with that and contend with that. And it's like, this secret has real stakes to it. So, you know, it's a great thing to give, you know, I, I, and I want to talk about this because on a very, like, craft-based level, if you give your character or all of your characters secrets, you know, it's suddenly a great source of tension is that every scene, every single scene with a character who doesn't know that secret, there's instant tension. There's instant subtext. Because you know something as the audience that the characters do not know. Or at that at least one of the characters, perhaps the protagonist knows, and then no one else knows. And then suddenly, you know, MJ finds out, Ned finds out, whoever, and it's like, oh, now they have to worry about giving up that secret. And there's this added tension now in every scene they're in with people, where it's like, are they going to tell? How are they going to have to cover it up? And it's great use, uh, great, great source of drama and conflict, which is really what most stories are, is just conflict and like conflict leading to growth and to change and you know that's not always true in stories but i think largely especially in the western world that is true and so secrets are really an amazing opportunity to give a really grounded personal source of conflict and tension that can expand beyond just like any one scene to the to the whole narrative that can last throughout an entire movie or multiple movies that we as we've seen in the spider-man franchises i i remembered you bring that up, the Marvel DC now, that 
reminded me of what I was going to mention. And that was, with the Homecoming Trilogy, you are now in a world that started with I Am Iron Man. And it is more surprising that you're keeping that a secret. When you're in a world with so many superheroes, and everyone knows who each superhero is, and you know who's a superhero and who's not, they're not shying away from that. So Peter is the anomaly in that case, which makes it more earth-shattering when the world finds out. Right. Because he was just hoping he could be that exception. I mean, you even have, in Shang-Chi... You have just, they're in a bar, and then just Wong opens a portal, and they just walk through right. it after just recounting their whole story, and their friend's like, no way. And then they just walk through right. it. It's and like it's, it's not so, a secret. Right. And they're so casual about the fact that they're superheroes. Right. And it's great. <laughs> it's just, and I, I think that there, there's so much fun to have with that world, and the fact that you now have Peter wanting to keep that a secret from the world when he's already a fish out of water to avoid being more of a fish out of water in a way is fascinating. Yeah. And the way that, but it allows those funny and more shocking moments. Like it's like when, when MJ finds out Peter is Spider-Man in Spider-Man two, or when Gwen finds out Peter is Spider-Man in the amazing Spider-Man, like, yeah, they're like, Oh wow. Like you, they just found that out. Like, yeah, it's still going to be a surprising moment that that's the moment in which they find out. But it's not in the same level in which... Okay, I guess... Okay, wait. It's surprising when anyone in that world is finding out that he's Spider-Man because no one is supposed to know he's Spider-Man. They play it for the bigger reaction in the MCU trilogy because of the fact that he's trying so hard to keep it a secret knowing how easy it is for his identity to be revealed. Sure. When the MCU is literally like, his mentor is Tony Stark, who is Iron Man, who everyone knows is Iron Man. And then they have to keep balancing that where he's interacting with superheroes and he has to convince everyone. Like, you have every reason to convince and you even have MJ suspicious that he is Spider-Man. And, like, you have that in in Far From Home where it's, he's trying so hard. It's much easier to, right, lose your secret identity. So there's the what the F moment at the end of uh, Homecoming. Like, it's, it's so hilarious when it finally does happen it, it's so epitomized by an infinity war that scene where like they go up in the spaceship and dr strange is there is like i'm dr strange and he's like peter's like oh so we're using our fake names <laughs> i love that it's just uh marvel's so good at the humor and just like yeah, playing with the very character-based humor so one more thing i want to talk about uh on a very concrete sort of like craft level is the Mice Quotient. I'm going to make a whole episode at some point on the Mice Quotient. It was invented by uh, the sci-fi fantasy author Mary Robinette Kowal. So I'm not going to get into detail here about this. but There's a plastic bag flying behind you. Oh, what is this? Uh, American Beauty. I was just so confused. I was like, this high up? All right. Anyway, sorry. Go Um, on. (laughs) Sorry. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? No. It's a plastic bag (laughs) in downtown Los Angeles. Delete all of this. Anyway. Yeah. Mice Uh, Quotient. The Mice Quotient, which stands for milieu, which is basically a location, investigation, character, and event. And it's just basically these are like the different types of stories you can tell. And you can see different versions of stories into you know, a larger narrative. And so you'll, you'll, you'll start with say an event, like you'll have like, I can't believe this is where my brain went to, but the two twin towers, 
you know, getting bombed, and then you'll have a character story because they lost a loved one, and now they have to contend with PTSD and grief. I don't know. You know, and it's like, so you kind of see these stories in, right? And the, the larger theory about it is when you get bad pacing in stories or things that the audience just kind of instinctively feels is wrong, it's because this, the stories have been seeded incorrectly. So say that you start with an event and then have a character story and then you end your event story and then end your character story, that's going to feel wrong because you're introducing to the audience the event first. So that feels like the more significant narrative, what the story is really about. And so that is what should theoretically end last. And the reason I bring this up with these movies is a very specific thing that stood out to me in the first Amazing Spider-Man movie, which is a movie I like a lot, is how the, the movie has a, like an extended epilogue. It just keeps going after the big final fight. Most movies, after the final fight, you get like two scenes and then it's done. Peter continues to can deal with, oh, George Stacy is dead. Am I going to break up with Gwen? Yes, I'm going to break up with Gwen. But I want to be with her so bad. She wants to be with me. What are we going to do? And then it finally ends with him like getting back together with her. But like, it takes like 10 minutes for that to happen. Like, it's a surprisingly long amount of time. And that sequence, despite the fact that I care a lot about the romance, always felt off to me. And I feel like, I don't know that this is universally true. I, I am loath to subscribe to any idea that any sort of theory of storytelling is universally 100% true with everyone because storytelling, writing is an art and art is subjective. But I think to kind of elaborate on what the mice quotient is, that that is not what you start the story with, right? You start with Peter's parents and then you don't get any payoff to that. So that ends up feeling like a, like just thrown in there. Like that ends up feeling like a nothing burger and which people complain about. They're like, well, where was the Peter's parents story? Like nothing came of that. You said nothing burger? Yes, I said nothing burger. It's, is that, it's is a, that a term? Yeah, it's a term. I've heard it before. I don't, I didn't make it up. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then you get to like Peter's sort of personal life and the romance ends up coming in, but not before we've gotten like spy shit, spiders, all the, the Spider-Man stuff. Right? And so you think that, like, oh, that's where the movie should end. But it doesn't. It just keeps going about the romance, even though the romance is introduced as a conflict. It's still early in the movie, but later than what sort of you would consider the, the main, like, plot. You know, the events, the, the, uh, the, the investigation is in the mice quotient, you know, milieu, investigation, character, event. The investigation of, like, what happened to his parents, whether doesn't happen it doesn't really end and then the one kind of part of it that does sort of end with kurt connors and the lizard that happens the the end to that story happens and then you just keep eating the gwen thing so it kind of feels a little like tacked on and a little like why is this movie still happening you know and i think that is why that specific part of the movie maybe i personally have seen it uh felt this way and have seen it criticized that you know that part kind of feels tacked on like it feels like the movie just kind of keeps going and I think that's why. And interestingly, I think Amazing Spider-Man 2 has a similar sort of situation where the movie kind of keeps going after Gwen dies. Because they didn't want to like end the movie on a bummer note. So they had to like, create the situation where it's like, oh, Spider-Man's back. But he's just kind of like, you just see Peter grieving. And then he like watches the rest of the graduation video. And it's just kind of like, it just feels kind of ham-fisted. You're like, oh, he didn't watch this video all this time. They graduated way before Gwen died. Like he never saw this. Like what, and so it, it, it sort of is like the way that the stories are seated in these 
such that it like kind of feels like the story keeps going when it shouldn't. Um, because even though you're dealing with things that you've been dealing with the entire movie, it wasn't what you began with. It wasn't like the premise of the movie. And it's interesting that way to me that I think the Mark Webb movies, again, are so focused on the romance. But the romance isn't what the plot is based around. They contrive this spy plot about like the secret of Oscorps and the secret of Peter's parents. And that ends up leading to nowhere. So not only does that feel like there's no payoff, which is frustrating in its own way, but then you have the romance, which is what the movie's really about, which, you know, you follow until the end, but isn't like the first thing you see. It isn't introduced until later on. And so it gets to be this whole, it, it, it fucks with the pacing is what I'm getting at. It fucks with the pacing. And so, you know, look into the mice quotient if you want to have uh, learn more about it. I'm going to get to it in a later episode when we return in season two. Maybe that'll even be the first episode. But uh, in the meantime, I just wanted to kind of touch on that and tease that. Uh, with that said, do you have anything else to say about Spider-Man? I just Spider-Man? want to say one thing about that yeah, go for scene it. with Amazing Spider-Man. I don't know why I got so close to the mic. <laughs> I do feel like with that epilogue of Amazing Spider-Man, I get what you're saying. But I also think it goes back to what we were talking about before about the movie that Mark Webb set out to make or seemingly set out to make where it's that more grounded indie film spirit with that happens to be about someone who is Spider-Man. Totally. And you do have those big moments and those big things, but I feel like that epilogue, while yes, there it may it could have potentially been shorter, it could have been like faster race. I think that that series of events was necessary for the ending because I think you're tying back to at the end what this is is this is a story about Peter and it's Peter being Peter and everything that he's struggling with and I think if you end it with that big Spider-Man moment because I mean even at the end it does cut to that really cool shot where he's spinning that web at the camera in slow right. motion which looked amazing in 3D by the way but it's, <laughs> but it's that that whole scene I think you have to you have so much time that's spent on Spider-Man that I think you also you have to pull need back to, to Peter. pull back to Peter. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. And I do think that's where every... Yes, I agree 100%. And, and my argument is not that it's a mistake necessarily to end there. It's a mistake not to structure the beginning such that that is clearly set up as like, this You're is what where the story you, is about. You want to know like, what's so, like, up with So like introduce it, yeah, like earlier, you know, right. rather than like, fuck the parent stuff is basically what I'm saying. Like, cut, cut that. Like, that's not where you start. Like, start with Peter in high school dealing with Gwen, you know? And maybe you can tease some stuff there, but, like, you need to establish their story and or establish that it's about Peter, you know, as a person, like, personally, and not this mystery. Because the, the teaser they introduced, the first Spider-Man movie, Peter is certainly there, but it's not really about him. It's about, like, what's going on with his parents. And then suddenly that's not... That actually does drive a lot of his actions, but it isn't what the movie ends on. It ends up not being really right. about, per se. Do you think it would have been more impactful if it didn't start the way it started, with the, the him as a kid, and instead all of the background with his parents are saved for Amazing Spider-Man 2, to where you're seeing all the background in the scene with the plane, and then leaving I mean, if it was, all the secrets? Because that's was, such a big part of Spider-Man 2. Amazing Spider-Man 2. If it was me, I would have found a way to cut it all, because I think it takes away from Peter being kind of an ordinary kid, which is a criticism you hear a lot, and I think is true. But I... And it's out of the comics. Peter's parents were spies in the comics. I mean, it kind of gets retconned sometimes, where it's like, no, they weren't. Yes, they were. No, they weren't. Whatever. Uh, but I think in 
service of the more indie, more Peter-focused approach to the Spider-Man movies, they should have opened more quietly rather than opening with the big spy thing. Right. Maybe in both movies. You know, start a little quieter. Have the tension be based on Peter's character and his internal drama. And, like, you know, you could even do a, like, cut to the future sort of, you know, one of those classics. Like, you're wondering how I got here, record scratch. You know, like, something like that where it's, like, it doesn't feel like, you know, it's, like, this is what the movie's about. That's what a teaser, like, that first scene of a movie is supposed to really establish is, like, give you an idea of what you're getting into. And the mice quotient argues that, like, whatever's the last thing you're going to see, whatever's the last conflict you're going to deal with, that should be the first conflict you see, right? And again, I'm not saying this is universally true. Like, I'm just presenting this theory and introducing this theory to the audience. And I do think that there's some truth to be had, for at least me personally in these movies, of how they tell you to focus on the spy stuff, and the spy stuff doesn't matter that much, ultimately. You know, even in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, like, it informs Peter. It's not, like, completely absent. But it doesn't ultimately play as big a role. And so I I would say is like highlight up front what the movies are really about, which is that like really internal, am I going to kill all the people closest to me? Peter conflict. All right. We're nearing the end of the episode. But before we do that, I do just want to ask you, I told you I'm going to test out a a quick new segment here, which is what is uh, a favorite trope of yours and why? In general or pertaining to these movies? Either. Whatever you want to say. I just, uh, I want to, you know, start asking, you know, if people have like quirky things they ask at the end of the podcast, and this is going to be mine, which is, what is a favorite trope of yours and why? Dang, I was prepared for Spider-Man. <laughs> do it, do, do a Spider-Man one. Hold on, hold on. Okay. Spider-Man specifically, I just think there's some really great montages across all three of them. I think, especially the, the way that they use, the use of montage for him getting used to his powers. And all of the different ways that you see that. So Peter locked in that warehouse in Spider-Man Homecoming. And the whole, like, getting ready montage that first morning. The um, learning superpowers montage. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, like, I mean, in Amazing Spider-Man, where, like, the toothpaste, like, hits the, like, mirror, like that whole, I love that. It's yeah, such too. a great, such a great scene. And so I love that, and that sticks out for me. I just want to stick on that right now, just because, like, my mind is all a hundred percent in Spider-Man right now, and I feel like like I I know I no, have it's another. A great answer. I know I have a different answer in terms of just a favorite general trope, but I feel like my mind right now is so focused on Spider-Man that that's just where my mind is going at the moment. I, when a montage is done well, it always really adds a lot of you know momentum to a story. And I think when I was talking about how shorter scenes, the MCU movies have more montages, mm-hmm. which is, especially Homecoming, which is kind of what I was uh, alluding to. They also have more. I think a lot of the scenes are literally shorter too, but they have more montage, which are often, you know, just a compilation of short scenes. Montages being, you know, a series of images put together to, you know, create an idea, to create an idea of growth and movement in uh, an audience. It's kind of a basic filmmaking technique. And I I think that's, no, that's a great trope and one I'm also very fond of. Do you have a favorite Spider-Man one specifically? Since my mind went to the Spider-Man specific ones. Um, 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 um. It would be really fucked up if I said killing Uncle Ben, right? <laughs> uh, no, um, I do love those scenes, actually. Uh, I always find them powerful, and I'm sad we haven't seen the MCUs. Well, we sort of did. But Superhero Montage is a great one. That's a, that's a trope I love. I, I think, I'm trying to think of, like, among all the trilogies, like, what do they all do? Web swinging? I don't even know if that's a, that's, I wouldn't call that a trope. 
yeah, I think I would say the same thing. The kind of learning the superpowers montage. I think all of the trilogies do that well. I think they all have really fun, good versions of that. So I'm, I'm going to say that. I'm going to agree with you on that one. Yes. <laughs> Winning. Um, well, thank you, Austin, for coming on the podcast. Is there uh, any last thoughts you want to leave us with? I just want to thank you for for having me. I just want to, the last minute thoughts You're very welcome. Are, we're just going to keep talking close to the microphone. No, I think I, I'm so glad that we finally got to do this. The fact that, and we were talking about this before, we've been talking about this for a long time. I mean, this has been something that we've, we had planned to do a different one in September, then we're, then didn't work out due to just conflicting schedules. And then we're like, okay, we'll do it in October. We'll do something fun for Halloween. And then something came up there. And then in November is we should talk about Spider-Man with the, well before the new movie comes out. Yeah, this and was then, supposed to come out before No Way Home. But you know what? In a way, I'm glad it didn't because I feel like it then opened our eyes and realized, oh, the overall Homecoming trilogy is that first movie and is that origin right. story. And you see Peter for Peter where everything is pulled, taken away from him and he's left with nothing at the end of No Way Home. And I think that that lends itself well to the overall conversation about all of those movies and so in a way i think it worked out well i hope that the next time uh, we we do talk about a movie on here that it's a lot sooner than figure out five months fingers fucking crossed (laughs) it's like trying to schedule a celebrity it is (laughs) but i'm very i'm very grateful uh to have been on here and very happy i i mean i i have been loving everything that you've been doing with the podcast and to be able to be in here and be a part of the conversation and i hope you're ready for your uh your career to blow up now that my 12 fans have listened to you i am very excited to see where you take this for season two and you've been telling me about the budget i mean the 20 million CGI budget per it's episode, crazy. which doesn't even make sense because it's an audio-only podcast. Oh, you, you just wanna, wait till you see what, what, what I'm doing. You want to... It's, it's, I'm very excited, and uh, I'm very... I've got Chinese investors. This is going to get crazy. I'm very proud of you, Carl. I'm very... Oh, thank you. <laughs> just get right up. <laughs> I really appreciate that, Austin. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to end this, but I'm, you're going to... Do you want to leave uh, them with any socials? Follow you on any social media? No. Okay. <laughs> Uh, good. It's so funny because 80% of the people I bring on the podcast are like, no, I, I, I'm happy to stay anonymous. Uh, it's not even that. I don't even like post that much on social media. There's, yeah. Me too, honestly. It's a problem. I'm like trying to advertise this podcast and I'm like, I hate social media. Hey, if you want to see a, see a mediocre 10 second clip of a fireworks show every three months, you can find it <laughs> Yeah, I hear you. I hear you on that one. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on the pod. And thanks, as always, to you lovely listeners for checking out this first season of PopCraft. I really, really appreciate it. Please consider leaving a review if you enjoyed the show. Check out the socials linked below. And last but not least, consider donating to Patreon. You'll get access to bloopers, behind-the-scenes contents, get a vote on different movies and shows for us to cover, on pop craft, that sort of thing. That's really just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the sort of engagement I'm going for through Patreon. And also, 
I know we talked about things Spider-Man in a pretty broad way a lot of the time this episode. And because it's the season finale, I didn't want to leave you with just kind of a, a fun, you know, informative, but still not craft-heavy episode. So there's going to be a little post-credit scene where I talk about one piece of hard, nitty-gritty craft that all of the different Spider-Man franchises employ. So stick around after our little credits, if you will. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. I've been your host, Carl Albert, and this is Season 1 of Pop Craft. There's a common refrain among those who would give advice about screenwriting that you should get into a scene as late as possible and get out of it as early as possible. And some people even say that is true with endings or with movies in general. Get into the movie as late as possible and get out of it as early as possible. I believe Steven Spielberg uh, said that is generally his approach to filmmaking. And oh, don't quote me on that, but he certainly took that approach with Jaws in which the movie ends right after the, they blow up the shark. You have the climax, then it ends. The movie's done. Character arcs are over. These Spider-Man movies, however, do not take that approach. They all have epilogues that highlight something crucial about Peter Parker. They highlight how Peter has changed. They focus in on the character, forsaking the plot, putting that to the side because it's over with. That's what the climax, the big CGI spectacle fight, the punch em up was all about. But the movie isn't done when that fight is over. No, in the first Spider-Man movie directed by Sam Raimi, Peter still attends Norman Osborn's funeral. He still has to tell Mary Jane that he can't be with her because inside he knows he'll put her in danger. In the Amazing Spider-Man franchise, we actually talked earlier, Austin and I, about how the first movie continues, I, I think, personally a little too long, focusing on will they, won't they with Peter and Gwen. And it ultimately ends when Peter decides, fuck it. Fuck what George Stacy said, I want to be with the love of my life. In Spider-Man Homecoming, you have Peter at the Avengers campus deciding that he is not ready to be an Avenger, telling Iron Man, Tony, that he just wants to be a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. And in No Way Home, of course, you have the tragic scene where Peter decides to let MJ and Ned continue to live their lives separately from him without knowing who he is, without knowing his true identity. All of these scenes hit on fundamentally how Peter has changed over the course of the movie. They are all about Peter making one final decision outside of the climax of the plot, an internally directed decision about how he's going to act going forward. This moment, this scene, while yes, is an epilogue to the larger story, is crucial for your character and for the audience to see how far they've come. It's often a parallel scene with one in the first act or the beginning of the story. As you can see in No Way Home, where they meet at the shop, the donut shop that MJ works at, in direct parallel to the scene early in the movie where Peter, Ned, and MJ get their rejection letters from MIT, where they cemented the power of their friendship. This is a moment of catharsis for the audience. This is the decision that defines the movie for your protagonist. And 
all the Spider-Man movies take advantage of this. It's a tool I know I'm fond of, and I recommend you try with your screenplays. I hope that was helpful, and I'll see you again in a couple months.